I'm Aaron Cariotti. I'm a physician and director of the Bioethics and American Democracy Program at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. For 15 years, I was director of the Medical Ethics Program and a professor at the School of Medicine, the University of California, Irvine. My name's Alethea Wieland. I'm president and COO of Clinical Research Strategies. We're a boutique contract research organization and executive management consultancy, over 35 years providing services to biotech, medtech, and the pharmaceutical companies. Hi, I'm Peter Blaney. I'm the CEO of Indoran Ventures. It's a general partnership that's focused on the creation of biotech companies. I'm Kinsetta Dudley. I'm an attorney and bioethicist and adjunct professor with Johns Hopkins University. I'm Jennifer Lall. I'm the president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture. I'm Megan Murphy. I'm a writer and podcaster and the founder and editor of Feminist Current. What if we had a text editor for DNA in cells? And it turns out that now we do. Synthetic RNA is a revolution in medicine that uh, most people are not aware of just how much of a revolution that is. I would say this is like medicine going from analog to digital. The big product of the 21st century are going to be bodies and minds. And you see, the difference of this fourth uh, industrial revolution is it doesn't change what you are doing, it changes you. We're going to become increasingly non-biological to the point where the non-biological part predominates and the biological part is not that important anymore. One definition of this is it's about a time when basically immersive digital worlds become the primary way that we live our lives. If you take a genetic editing, uh, just as an example, it's you who exactly. are changed. And of course, this has a big impact on your identity. So I think we are heading to, towards the upgrading of homo sapiens into gods. Is there something to worry about with medicines? That is, might some of them have side effects? Do we need safety testing? I mean, and we're taking things that are, you know, genetically modified organisms and we're injecting them in little kids' arms. We just shoot them right into the vein. Growing up in Nebraska was great. I wouldn't change it for the world. My medical issues started at a very young age. My four major medical conditions are complex regional pain syndrome, Arnold Chiari malformation type one, thoracic outlet syndrome, and endometriosis. At 17, I was going through treatments, hammering needles into my spine and into through my neck and injecting medication over and over and over again. They knew what they were doing to me and all those treatments were on top of 144 pills. When I chose this experimental therapy, I was hopeful that it was gonna take everything away. I was hopeful that I was gonna feel great. I was gonna get back to working and I didn't. I got very sick. It didn't work out the way that 
we'd hoped. I'm Kinsey Lyons, and I was harmed by medical technology. It's been my experience over 35 years that the pharmaceutical and biotech industries are really not helping diseases and patient outcomes. We look at things like the cost of the U.S. healthcare system, the fact that we're actually getting sicker, that more rare diseases are being tackled, and that we have an obesity crisis in the United States. So again, I don't see the health and vitality of citizens going up. In fact, I see them getting sicker and sicker. The lifespans are going down. And so how can that be after having an 80-year, 100-year uh, history in these types of products being developed and we're getting sicker? It doesn't make any sense. You know, we've been fighting the war on cancer since Nixon was a president. He, Nixon declared war on cancer and we're going to win it. We're going to beat cancer. Well, we haven't beat cancer. I think we're on nine, 10 generations of antibiotics now because the bugs get, they get fiercer. And then we have to have a stronger antibiotic and then the bug gets fiercer because it's a germ war. And you know, so far we haven't won. We haven't been able to you know, wave the we won flag and the germs haven't waved the white flag. We give up, we surrender. You're, you're, you're right, we're gonna, we're gonna die here. We're no more germ free. On the one hand, Technology has offered us many wonderful things to make human life better. But on the other hand, there are sometimes concerns that the misuse of technology can uh, not only get to the point where it's not enhancing human health and, and human flourishing, but it actually becomes dehumanizing. We can take an approach of just becoming a Luddite and saying technology is bad because it's produced things like the atomic bomb. The other extreme would just be to embrace every new technological advance wholesale as automatically a good thing, or sort of the naive view that all technology is neutral, that it's merely a tool that we can use well or that we can use badly. I think that oversimplifies. The really hard problem is navigating that middle space of how do we, how do we stay human in the context of really powerful and complicated advances in whether it's digital technology or biotechnology or surveillance technology. How do we navigate those scientific, medical, and technological advances without relinquishing our humanity? Yeah, I mean, I think that people believe that technology is always for us. They think that new technologies are a service to people, as though, you know, it's some kind of like charitable donation to us. And of course it's not. I mean, of course all of this stuff is going to be for profit and maybe for more nefarious ends. People just see technology, new, new advancements as progress, and progress is overwhelmingly seen as a positive. You know, when you think about making progress, that usually sounds like a good thing. And so when people hear about a new technology, they go, progress. It's an advancement. We advance in the, in the positive direction. You know, you don't think about advancing in the wrong direction. You think that's going backwards. So I, I think there's just sort of this air of pro progress. Any progress means it's good. So we have to be mindful that, that 
Law and ethics have not kept up with the speed of technology, with the speed of technology development, which is really a critical thing for us to look at at this point in time. As technology gets further out in front of us, we have to make every effort to get law and ethics to catch up with it so we can make realistic, solidly good decisions about how new technologies should be applied and if they should be applied. Unfortunately, a lot of the issues that we come into in bio, the use of biotechnology, there isn't a line. There is a continuum that you move along and you will hit a point where you're obviously doing something wrong, but that's not where you started. So can we develop an ethics that will give us simple black and white rules about what we should or shouldn't do? No, we're not gonna be able to get there. But it's our struggle and we have to do it if we want the species to survive. Transhumanism, in a nutshell, is a project or an aspiration that seeks to use science and technology to recreate human beings, to fundamentally redesign human nature, to take normal functioning, healthy people, and rather than using science and technology to heal them of disease or improve their functioning if they are disabled, to make healthy people, quote unquote, better than well bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, and when taken to its logical conclusion, to even make human beings, in a sense, superhuman. Some transhumanists even talk about, at the end of the, the line here, what we will have is not only two distinct kinds of human beings, but literally two distinct species. One, which is homo sapiens as they now exist, and another, which is the enhanced or the recreated or the transformed superhuman being. I think the idea that transhumanists are trying to create a form of, of superhuman is, is very much part of their ideal. We know that that may, might look a number of different ways. So a superhuman in terms of maybe computing power our ability to think quickly, our ability to live longer, live more robust lives somehow. These things, while interesting objectives, cause a lot of inherent tension in the, from the transhumanist perspective. Because at the end of the day, um, if those things are accomplished, the question that I would say these they then beg is, you know, do these things really move us forward in terms of our humanity? Or do they simply move us forward in terms of our ability to apply technology? And then who controls that technology? In the early days of Christianity, church's main sort of religious competitor in the ancient world were the Gnostic religions or the Gnostic sects. And there were many different Gnostic sects. It wasn't one unitary phenomenon like the, the Christian church. But all of these different sects had a few things that they shared in common. And one of those was the belief that 
the material world was fundamentally something evil, something to be transcended or overcome. So Christianity had ascetical tendencies toward the body, you know, things like fasting or, or bodily discipline were important in Christianity because of the doctrine of Christ's suffering and death on the cross, and the suffering could potentially have spiritual value. Even so, Christianity never rejected the human body. It never rejected human reproduction or the messy business of our bodily frame. And the reason was that Christianity posited that the entire world, both spiritual and material, was created by the same good God. Gnostics did not believe that. Gnostics believed that only the spiritual world was created by a good God. And they thought the material world was created by an evil principle that was sort of acting in opposition to the good God. And this led them to two fundamentally different approaches to the human body. Some of the Gnostic sects took a very stringent, extremely ascetical approach to discipline and disciplining the body, like to the point where, you know, fasting to the point of getting really sick and dying. Uh, some of the Gnostic sects said, should not engage in sexual intercourse or bodily reproduction because the body is evil. Other Gnostic sects took kind of the opposite extreme. They would say things like, well, the human body doesn't really matter, so it doesn't really matter do with the human body because it's not part of, you know, it's not part of the spiritual world, which is what's really important. And so they would be extreme libertines. They would have, you know, indiscriminate sexual relationships. And while those look on the surface like two, like polar opposite approaches to the body, they're both undergirded by this same notion that the body isn't good, that it fundamentally doesn't matter. And getting back to the transhumanists, the body is just kind of raw material that we either want to get rid of, right? Upload our minds into the mainframe in the cloud so we can be free of this mortal coil, or the body is just raw material that we can do whatever we want with it. Both of these approaches are a revival of the ancient Gnostics' attitude toward the body. You know, medicine has moved from, you know, making us well to making us better than well. The transhumanist beliefs is that we need to overcome death. You know, we need to become immortal. You know, they're transitioning from this aging body, this mortal soul, it's not terribly happy and, and can't really perform well anymore. And they're transitioning over to this new being, this post-human future, right? And we, where we will become something other. Well, I don't think we're ever gonna be able to do that. I think it gets back to mother nature, and that all these tweaking and modifications and augmentations and chips in our brain and, and CRISPR gene editing kind of stuff will come back and empower us. When someone suggests I can upload my consciousness, it's a reflection of my consciousness. It's not me. It's like telling someone you have a shadow and the shadow is you. No, it's not. And if you think it's me that gets uploaded into a device, well, if the device gets up and walks away, do you still, still think it's you? And another question I would have about it is if I've uploaded this consciousness onto a device, um, if someone hits the delete button, is it murder? Um, if I've uploaded my consciousness and it's that fragile that it can disappear by hitting a delete button, what kind of um, eternal life form is that? And as humans, we 
we have our consciousness based on our basic senses sight sound touch um, that's what informs our consciousness our senses if we're uploaded into a machine how would any of that continue I, I, I think any explanation that anyone gives me is nonsense on its face I mean what are you living for then living for nothing living to be you know hooked up to the internet people totally like lost sight of what life is and what what brings us meaning you know you live forever then for what to be addicted to pills and on Facebook <laughs> like, I don't know if it's worth it it's hard to say no to technology that's the problem it's hard to say no because it's this thrust on us you know I remember one of my conversations with one of the more extreme you know neural network virtual being kind of transhumanist and again because of her compassion I said well are we all gonna have to just buy into it like, oh no 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 we won't force people to participate we won't make you. We don't want people to have to do this. But you know, pretty soon you have to do it. You know, because you're living in a world where everybody else has. And you know, and I said, so we're going to be like the Amish, you know, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the small little community that still doesn't use cars and you know, horse and buggies. And she's like, well, yeah, because we would never force people. If you, if you remember Ajax from Homer's Odyssey and Iliad. Um, there was this old expression in, in Greece if the, the people that the gods wish to destroy, they give enormous power. Um, and these guys are seeking enormous power. If they want to extend life indefinitely, if they want to put their consciousness into a machine that gives them immortality, if they want unbelievable physical power, um, the ability to switch from one body to another and so on. Yeah, I think they're pursuing that. They're trying to become gods. Another feature of Gnosticism that it shares with the transhumanists is that Gnosticism was an elite, fundamentally elitist phenomenon. And what I mean by that is, again, in contrast to Christianity, Christianity posited that God's grace is available in principle to all of us. So salvation is possible for anyone. The Gnostics said, no, salvation is only available to a select few, a few who are initiated into the mysteries, who have this, literally, the secret knowledge, that's where the word Gnosticism comes from. The transhumanists take a, a similar attitude and approach to ordinary people that don't have access to the science and the technology, who cannot sort of discern the direction of history and are going to be left behind. They want to stay ordinary human beings while we recreate ourselves into a superhuman kind of species. Well, that's their business, but they're eventually going to be left behind. They're going to be discarded. And it's going to be the select few that see that, you know, our destiny is to embrace the powers that science and technology gives us to achieve these kinds of aims, which again, I argue, are fundamentally spiritual. So this ancient Gnostic religion has been around for a long time, and it's been revived at various points in human history. We can see, uh, you know, Renaissance revival of certain practices of alchemy and magic, for example. Transhumanism is the same 
ultimately the same phenomena. It has this grounding metaphysical beliefs about the world, about the human body, uh, about what makes for a flourishing human life. Uh, it has the same elite attitude toward, you know, the, the few initiated who have the knowledge and therefore the power to be spiritually superhuman versus the ordinary rabble that either needs to be ignored or discarded or left behind on the on the dustbin of of history there are those transhumanists that look at humanity as nothing more than an active petri dish for them to do with what they will they are willing to abandon the rest of us these are things that aren't intended to to truly improve the lives of other people these are things that feed into a warped worldview. And when a few people come together to pursue that warp, warped worldview, and they also have the monetary means to pursue those activities, we become the subjects of experimentation that should never be taking place. It can be a force for it can actually be used to end the human race. And there are a few people out there actively working to that end, and transhumanists would be among that group. And they have no moral breaks whatsoever. So ethics doesn't even apply for people like that. They, I don't think they pay any attention to it. It's an abstract that has no purchase on their behavior whatsoever. In my view, it's a cult. We're developing the foundational tools and knowledge in order to be able to engineer our uh, uh, biological systems, including potentially reconstituting uh, life itself. So the control of reproduction is a key feature of the transhumanist ideology through things like artificial wombs, through technologies we already see on the market, like in vitro fertilization. Combining those things with gene editing, with other genetic technologies to, again, not only correct diseases or deficiencies in the human embryo, but to select for the kind of human embryo that we believe is optimal, and then even intervene on that to make it more than optimal, to make it, in, in some sense, more than human. Assisted reproductive technologies allow us to make uh, human embryos, human life in the laboratory. Um, sometimes you'll hear people talk about in vitro fertilization. In vitro means in the glass, in the test tube. So in the olden days, we had test tube babies, which we don't call them test tube babies anymore. But part of assisted reproductive technology is not only creating life in the lab, but we also have genetic testing, uh, pre-implantation genetic testing, where you test the embryos before they're even in the womb. So say a couple wants to design a baby and have a boy or have a girl, or they have a genetic disease in their family that they don't want to pass on to their, their children. They will test the embryos before they're even implanted. Does this, this embryo have Down syndrome? So there is an element of picking and choosing. When eggs come out of the woman's body in this assisted reproductive technology enterprise, the 
eggs are graded, just like when you go to the grocery store, they're grade A eggs. You know, we want the best eggs. Uh, the sperm is graded when it comes out of the man's body. You know, are these healthy sperm? Do they swim fast? Are they gonna get to where they need to get to? And then once the embryos are made, the embryos are graded too. That's when the, the testing and the design element comes in. So all of this is about control controlling the kinds of babies that are going to be produced, the kind of babies that are going to be born. It's very expensive technology. So part of the, the, the lore is, you know, well, the, you'll get the baby that you want. You'll, you might be spending a lot of money, but you'll make sure you get a healthy, cute baby of your, of your desire. CRISPR is a little tool that's based on enzymes that snip the genome at particular places to remove genetic material to insert new material in. It's basically like a little knife or a little pair of scissors that can snip and edit out chunks of the genome. As I said, the problem is that the genome is huge, even though it's very tiny. It's very complex, tiny, with millions of parts. And they're all folded over each other. And when you send in this little tool to make snips, you really have no idea what's going to be the end product. CRISPR can certainly be used for evil purposes like eugenics. I consider cons something like CRISPR in, in a very, at a very early stage, um, and so it's been used on things like cell lines and, and that. And there has been some, albeit limited, use in humans. Uh, when CRISPR was first developed. Uh, you'll, you will have seen a lot of the bioethics communities and the even the technical scientific communities coming out saying, you know, we really shouldn't be doing certain types of things. We need to ban those kinds of things. And we saw those things going on in China. And, and in China, there seem to be no rules um, about what these kinds of technologies can be used and how they can be used. Um, and if they if these experiments go wrong, there seems to be no concern uh, because from the perspective of country in countries like China, um, humans are very dispensable. The difficulty is when you just snip out the genes that cause a disease like sickle cell anemia, what else are you doing? What else is happening in here in these immensely complex little structures? We don't know. There's one thing, again, that the biotech industry has to do from a regulatory perspective is risk reduce anything that could possibly go wrong by the action of their gene editing. So in other words, by splicing and cutting and gene editing and things like that, they should understand what additional consequences to that action would be to a patient that would experience that new drug or biologic, for instance. We just don't know enough to understand that depth of eliminating future risk. It's hard to hold back cures and solutions for problems, but I think it's incumbent upon us not to create worse problems while we're doing it. When you think of CRISPR, um, I just, I kind of go, ooh, Frankenstein's kind of stuff, you know? It's all that, you know, just Legos and building and creating and, I mean, the, the safety issues, you know, are enough to keep me up at night. A baby's not a thing. It's not a product. This idea that I have a right to a child, 
I think is one of the dehumanizing aspects of the transhumanist movement and some of the other social trends that have maybe contributed to the rise of the transhumanist movement. I think people have the right to attempt to have a child. Um, I don't think they have the right to attempt to have a child by any means necessary, but certainly, certainly everyone has the right to attempt to have a child by the, the traditional ways of doing that. But that doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to get a child. Should medicine be doing this? I say no, medicine has, this is outside the bounds of medicine. Proper, good old, do no harm, Hippocratic of medicine. This is money driven. I mean, fertility doctors are some of the most lucrative. I'm told that, you know, like the head of uh, fertility medicine at NYU makes more than the university president because it brings in all kinds of revenue, right? Most couples that are entering into the assisted reproductive technology superhighway, I call it, you know, they're wealthy. This is very expensive technology. Again, it has a high failure rate, so people who have to be in it with, with resources because they know the first time they try it, they're not probably going to have a baby, so they're going to have to try it again and again and again. A lot of what they're trying to do isn't going to happen anyways because it's impossible. But do I think it's a good idea for us to really augment our, our genome? I'd recommend we try doing it on a little plant first and see what happens. And maybe in a couple of centuries, we will have learned enough to do something about it, to use it. But we're certainly not ready to today. Yeah, I think women have been taught that they can escape nature, that that's part of their feminist birthright, is that now, you know, you don't have to obey nature's rules because reproductive technology has solved that for you. So, you know, it's not a convenient time for you to have a baby when you're in your 20s. Um, you can just wait until it's convenient, until you're financially stable, until you've done what you've wanted to do in your career. And that's like a nice idea, but you can't. You actually don't have all the choices in the world. Your choices are limited by your body and your fertility and by time. And that's just the way that human beings work. And we can't theorize our way out of that. This idea that a child is my right very quickly gets us to the point where we see the child as sort of my property and possession. If we're engaged in a quality control project, when we first create the child, and the child doesn't then meet our standards, how is that quality control project actually shaped our attitudes toward the child? How does this notion that I have a right to a child, come what may, and I can do it, and, and make it happen any which way that I want, regardless of the consequences. How does that shape our attitudes towards the next generation from being one of an unbidden, mysterious gift that we are given, that we have temporary sort of custodial care over, but that ultimately, you know, this is a distinct human being that needs to live his or her own life to, you know, a project of my own making, a sort of project of my own creation. Um, the, the, the right to the child attitude is fundamentally, I think, about control. The eugenics and the transhumanist movement are fundamentally about control. And when you start talking about controlling not just the lived environment through science and technology, 
but controlling and reshaping human nature, human life, human genesis. What you're really talking about at the end of the day is some human beings control over other human beings. Right? There's no other way that we can exercise control over other people than by controlling other people. I argue that that's fundamentally a dehumanizing attitude that will lead to abuses and, and violations of human dignity rather than to you know, a more enhanced or a more flourishing human society. It's crazy. We're living in a, in a brave new world. There are things coming down the pipeline on the artificial intelligence front that are just going to make your hair stand on it. And Elon Musk, he, he thinks that the world will be controlled by whoever produces the most functional AI system, the fastest. AI is far more dangerous than nukes, far. So why do we have no regulatory oversight? This is insane. Some of us are probably familiar with AI taken to a bad end. How many of us have utilized social media, posted something that doesn't fit nicely within the algorithm of whatever social media platform we're in, and all of a sudden we're censored or we're booted off um, simply because an algorithm says what you said is unacceptable. I was kicked off of Twitter in 2018, um, really for questioning gender identity ideology. I was speaking truthfully and unapologetically about the truth. <laughs> You know, a woman is a female, a man can't become a woman. This is basic stuff um, that Twitter determined to be hate speech. What's a man, what's a woman, which is apparently nothing, you know? <laughs> According to Twitter, they never told me specifically what rule I broke. I know what tweets I was banned for, but they didn't tell me why those tweets were hateful. They weren't hateful, of course. Um, but, you know, that, that sent a message around the world that to say that a man is not a woman is hateful. And you can say, oh, it's just social media, Twitter's not real life, but it is. AI is not necessarily indifferent to us because AI can be biased. AI, it can absolutely be developed to see certain data as positive and other data as negative, dependent on who's doing the programming, what their views are of, of a given data set. And I was reinstated after being banned for four years, which is, is maddening because of the reasons that I was banned for, again, because Twitter is determining that speaking the truth is hate speech. But also, you know, I'm an independent writer and journalist. This is the only way that I can access my audience, an audience that I can connect with other writers, other journalists, with interviewees, I can how I can stay in touch with people, um, how I can share my work, and therefore how I can make a living. You know, like I'm not attached to an institution or a corporation. I don't have some other job. <laughs> I don't have, you know, private funders. I have subscribers and donors. This is straight up just from people who like my work and they think, oh, I'll give her $5. Um, so it had a major impact on my, my work. So technology, even though sometimes we don't want it, 
Um, it's hard to, to be a, a family that has no cell phones. You know, it's hard to, when everybody else, and how do you communicate with half the world when, when you know, you don't, you can't do instant messaging. I, I really don't know what the goal is for people that are pushing virtual realities other than money, maybe power. What do I think is wrong with it? It disconnects people. Um, it puts people in private, private worlds. Not good. Um, you know, was it, would it have been a good idea for Robinson Crusoe to have Meta? Would that have made things different for him? I don't know, but why are we doing it to everybody? that what's behind this push to force us into virtual lives, into virtual reality, is control. If we exist online, everything we do can be tracked. And everything we do can be controlled. We can only access what we can access. If we're getting all of our news and information from a news feed, from Facebook, from Twitter, Twitter or Facebook has control over the information that we can access. They have control over the news. I mean, we've seen how Twitter has controlled and shaped and dictated what constitutes a fact. They've determined what constitutes fake news, which is not necessarily fake news. It's just not the news that they want us to hear. Um, what constitutes hate speech, what we're allowed to speak about, Again, what kinds of information we're allowed to access and share with others, what what they dictate what science is. Trust the science. It's like Twitter Twitter now controls what science is. I mean, maybe we'll see that change with, with Elon Musk, but that's what's happened. We've seen a huge increase in that in the past few years. Um, but it's really concerning. Everyone should be concerned that a corporation is determining what information you have access to, what you're allowed to talk about, what kinds of words you're allowed to use, um, what constitutes science, what constitutes the truth. Why, why does big, big tech get to determine what, what is truth? I sort of see this communistic um, parallel is like, this is true totalitarianism. And the technology and social media companies are all in on it. And they have our names and we have these, you know, a Facebook account or something like that. Um, it's, these are pretty dangerous times. Yeah, and people think that they have like, so much autonomy in their choices and it's all been fed to them. There's so many uh, voices out there that are saying the same thing, suppressing and censoring um, people who have a counterpoint. Um, and so those types of people are oftentimes um, subject to ridicule and shaming and public shaming and uh, delicensing. And how did it get there? This is Nazi Germany, 1930s all over again. You know, it doesn't sound that bad, social ostracization, because you're not being jailed, you're not being killed, you're not being tortured. But social ostracization is a very, very cruel and effective form of punishment. We need people, we need our families, we need our communities, we need our friends, we need our jobs, we need our, you know, political circles, whatever it is, our sports teams. You know, these are things that bring meaning to our lives. Otherwise, what? We're at home in our apartment, swiping through dating apps. <laughs> clicking away on the internet. <laughs>
plugged in in virtual reality in a fantasy world on pills so that we don't get depressed. <laughs> you sort of need transparency and accountability. Um, you um, must not suppress um, debate. And uh, I think that the Constitution, as our f founders had written it, um, you know, over 200 years ago, they had the right start. They had the right recipe for what could blossom into um, that panacea of that opportunity for everyone to kind of flourish. I don't know why it's become expected to expect that you agree with other people on every single one of their opinions. You know, like I can only work with, associate with, sit on a panel with, do an interview with somebody who sees the world in the exact same way I do. How boring. I mean, what a good way to learn nothing. <laughs> to not be challenged, right? And that's what I think these people want. I don't think they want to be challenged. I don't know that they want to learn anything new. I think they want to be comfortable in the beliefs and ideologies that they already hold so that they don't have to feel uncomfortable, so that they don't have to change their beliefs, so that they don't have to, God forbid, change their mind and admit that they were wrong about something. If it impedes direct interaction with other human beings, if it impedes the development of relationships and that experience, that can't be good for people. That's not what we are, we're social creatures. So why do people find it attractive? It's a reality that they have some control over. Um, they don't have to learn how to cope with the problems that they face. Life is uh, not for cowards. It's, it's difficult. And if you can escape from that reality, I can understand why people would want to escape. Um, should we make it impossible for them to do so? I don't believe that would be a good idea either. But we should certainly support people to give them an alternative, and the, the alternative, I would say, is reality. I think that people don't know what freedom means. I think people don't understand what their rights are and why they have rights and why it's important to protect those rights. And you hear that from people who say things like, I support free speech, but not the free speech of racists, of misogynists, of bigots, as determined by me. So you don't support free speech. Free speech is for everybody. It's all free speech. It's even the speech that you don't like. That's the whole point. I actually see that in the biotech world right now is this synthesis of wearables, the synthesis of tech, the synthesis of making us better, taking in all these data. The Facebooks and the Googles and the Amazon clouds, a lot of them own the data. So do the larger pharma and biotech companies do as well. Well, what if that data was used against people? What if those technologies became, um, you know, so full of data that someone who had the wrong thought was actually penalized because of that? If you don't comply and you don't agree to interact with, with the computer on an AI level, you don't get to go grocery shopping. You don't get to go out to, to dinner. Uh, there are a lot of things you're restricted from. Your movement is restricted. So we're beginning to see the kind of nefarious application of AI. I mean, look at the way that people think about social media. 
They think it's a gift to them. Oh, it's just a service for me to use. These dating apps are just to help me find love. No, they're not. They specifically designed dating apps to be, to function like a slot machine. So you keep sh sh hoping for the win, the match, right? And then you get those endorphins and then they fall and you keep sweat. Oh, I might find something better. I might find a bigger win. The whole point is to keep you on there and of course to collect your data. It's not for you. None of these things are for you, which is not to say that, you know, social media cannot be useful to us. Obviously it is useful to us. Obviously I use these things for my work, but they don't exist for the good of humanity. <laughs> that was not the main point of social media. Not as it exists now, certainly, not as it will exist in the future. The existence still profit to collect data and, you know, probably worse things like to control access to information. There was also a pretty famous Facebook leak recently of uh, data. It was names of, of people who were, um, they had their phone numbers and their, their names leaked and things like that. And, you know, th that is of real concern is when you're sharing that type of information. Yet we do allow a lot of AI into our lives unfettered. I think that they're so corrupt and they've propped themselves up around these lies. And they've used us to basically help build this digital prison. I also think that the truth can only be suppressed for limited periods of time. A lot of the nonsense that we've been subjected to, the suppression of information and debate, it's all going to be temporary. So in sum, we're already well into the transhumanist era. But the story so far suggests that far from delivering utopia, what it mostly delivers is a codification of the human body. When somebody comes to you with an experimental treatment, it's brief. When has there been a doctor to explain from beginning to end exactly what this is, exactly what it's going to do, what it's going to do in 10 years? And if they can't answer those questions, you need to be aware of that. It's experimental for a reason. If you want to be a lab rat, go for it. I was. In my 35 years of just working in the industry, you always have the bad actors, you know? And then when you have the bad actors, these are sort of the companies like the transvaginal mesh uh, debacle. Then you had the baby powder debacle. Uh, in Europe, you had the breast implant scandal. You had the metal on metal and ceramic on ceramic orthopedic products. And so what's behind the scenes in terms of bringing a brand new product to market and how the regulators actually look at the documentation to prove that something is safe and efficacious before it's put on the market. In the US, Health and Human Services HHS is the umbrella agency that is charged with the promotion and protection of human health. Under the HHS, we have several agencies, one being the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. That is the research and funding arm of the HHS. HHS also includes 
the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. That is the regulatory arm of the HHS. The FDA is charged with regulating and approving five different kinds of products. Drugs, biologics, medical devices, combination products, as well as medical software. We then have the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. That is the statistics, the identification of disease and medical needs as they fall under HHS. And then the Public Health Service, PHS. The PHS is more of, of policy and enforcement arm of the HHS. So collectively, those come together to address many of the American medical needs. The public health institutions in the United States that were set up to ensure safety and efficacy of new medical products, to give recommendations to the public that would enhance our health individually and collectively have failed in that mission. When you're on that much medication, you have no idea what's up or down. You don't know who you are. You don't know where you are. You don't know anything. So why not perform treatments on somebody that doesn't know where they are, doesn't know up or down, or is just gonna say yes because they don't know what else to say because they are so scared and so hopeless. What else are you supposed to say besides yes? I find that many of the people who go into research, who go into the biotech world, if you ask many of them, why are we doing this? Why are you doing this? Many will say, I want to work on those things that are going to improve humanity. They go in with the best of intentions. And that's particularly happening at the, the lab bench, the researchers that are spending their life. Um, we call them lab rats. They're slaving to come up with better things, and they do it with the highest ideals. When it runs into trouble frequently is the commercialization phase. When it's turned into product, it's suddenly handled by other people with other agendas. Because I don't think that most technologies consider ethics first. Um, I think what can sell or profit is considered first, which, you know, fair enough. We live in a capitalist society. I don't expect these things to be produced or to exist for free without any profit. Why would anybody do it if there is no profit motive, really, realistically? Um, but I think that we've entered into some very dangerous spaces in terms of new technologies that are being produced and what's being, you know, we're experimenting on human beings. It's been, it's been six years, over six years, almost seven years since I've gotten the 10,000 milligrams of ketamine pumped through my body and I still cannot sleep right. It's been 11 years since I got sick and was put on those prescriptions and those side effects have still not gone away. Everything from my stomach, from the way I feel, from the, my bones aching, from my brain processing things, from, from things going numb, from now getting diagnosed with things that shouldn't, I shouldn't be being diagnosed with because of something that they said would help. 
And if you dig into the sources of that failure, what you begin to see is several problems. One is what has been called uh, industry capture, that the industry, in this case, the pharmaceutical or the biomedical industry that our public health agencies like the FDA and the CDC were meant to regulate, have been able to exercise undue influence over those very agencies that were supposed to be regulating these industries. And rather than serving the common good of the American people as a whole, instead, we very often have seen these agencies acting in the interest of the very corporations and industries that they were supposed to regulate. So we see the FDA, for example, rubber stamping products that have very inadequate safety and efficacy testing. This seemed to be really well understood in the 50s. People began to get more cautious about the use of technology, recognizing that they were getting a lot of unintended consequence and creating a lot of problems that are very difficult to solve. Today, there, there just there are no breaks. People come up with an idea and they rush to market with it, and the institutions behind it support it totally. When I was putting this together and earlier at the beginning of my career, and I talked about um, setting up these companies and so on, one of the things that I was really very much in favor of was P2P, public to private partnerships. What I didn't realize was. While it may be fine in dire situations to create a temporary alliance between public institutions and private corporations, putting them together to work that way all the time, that's the, that's the fundamentals in fascism. Ongoing, close collaboration between major corporations and public institutions. That's what I was recommending we do. I was naive. I thought, like the researchers around me at the time, having good intentions, that we were gonna make things happen for humans. We were gonna solve terrible problems. We created terrible problems because the major corporations and the investors behind them had very different agendas. Yeah, for the average person, I would be concerned about conflict of interest in this space, especially the relationships behind closed doors, relationships at medical conferences. You know, the regulators are oftentimes going there, uh, as well as the scientific community. And uh, let's face it, under the NIH, there are royalties that are being kicked in back to the NIH scientists. Uh, there's, there can be those conflicts of interest that regular Americans need to know about. They do exist. We have a system today where politicians get elected to office and they have humble beginnings, humble wealth. They retire multi-multi-millionaires. This is not the behavior of a public institution that is worthy of our trust at this point without some very serious reforms to remove the conflicts of interest with industry and pharma that have so compromised a place like the FDA or the CDC. So that, for example, we know that a majority of the FDA's funding now comes from pharmaceutical companies 
These companies can pay user fees to expedite the FDA approval process. And those user fees are now um, more than half of the FDA's working budget. So how can it meaningfully regulate an industry when it relies on that very industry to fund its operations, right? This is a clear financial conflict of interest. That's such a big tangled mess. I mean, because I'm, I really do like, I am a capitalist, you know? I like free markets. You know, I like people to be able to start businesses and not be so shackled by regulations and regulatory oversight and taxes and all this burden. Um, I'm, you know, I love the entrepreneurial spirit of the United States and the small businessman. You know, you come to America and you can, you know, start your own business and, you know, in, in years, you know, be a, a wealthy person because you, you know, you did it on your own. So I, I love that, you know, that rogue, you know, wild, wild west spirit. Um, but, but, but yeah, who's, who's the gatekeeper? You know, who's the sheriff? Who's keeping everybody clean and honest? And we all know that there's bad people in the world. There's bad actors that just don't really care what they're doing as long as they're making money. It's all a business. It's not about health or safety anymore. It's not about the greater good. It is about control. They're not building um, technology around the core foundation of risk. And risk is all knowing, all seeing of all the consequential things that could happen as a consequence of what you're building. So one of the things we do in, in life sciences and in biotech is always think about risks, risk management, risk benefit. Um, I don't see a, a way that you can anticipate all the things that could go wrong with you know, managing uh, machines and, and man. So we can't, you know, if we say no, if we say wait, if we say stop, if we say don't, we're, you're a Luddite. You know, are you anti-technology? No, I'm not anti-technology. I'm pro-safety. I'm pro-ethics. Uh, I'm pro being cautious and, and, and having all the, all the facts, as much information as possible. Uh, and I don't, I don't see that in today's, you know, scientific endeavors. You know, it's just, you know, it's put, nobody's pumping the brakes, everybody's pressing the accelerator. How I'm here, I have no idea. The abuse that I got from the doctors and from those drugs, I have no idea how I'm alive. Medicine does all kinds of things because they can, you know? It's like, it's the whole, you know, we can do it, but should we do it? But it's not enough to invent technologies to save lives. We need to manufacture advanced biotechnologies here in the United States. That's why today I signed an executive order that directs the federal government to ensure biotechnologies invented in the United States of America are made in the United States of America. And why I know it's serious business is that our White House, our current presidential administration, is very supportive by issuing prime statements that this is where we're heading next. We're going to go into this gene editing and transformation of the human body. And when I see that these other um, kind of like PR campaigns or um, campaigns that show an infiltration of that same thought is perme 
permeating throughout the United States, throughout Canada, throughout the rest of world. I really know we have a serious problem where we're no longer autonomous. We're no longer necessarily covered under the Constitution. I see our very rights disintegrating before our very eyes. We have become so accustomed to this moral relativism that if it's legal, it's somehow moral. Most of us are not big fans of Congress, for example. I don't look to Congress to get my moral grounding. We, we all need to be more aware of that. Don't look to government to say it's moral or not. If it's legal, you might not do jail time for it, but if it's immoral, for those of us with a faith grounding, this has all the eternal ramifications that one can muster. There are prices to pay in this life and if you believe in the next, and that's where we are. So we need to move away from moral relativism and move into a space where we do the things that we know in our heart of hearts are the right thing to do, are the, are the moral thing to do. This is an exercise in deciding at this inflection point in society which path we're going to choose. You know, in the olden days, it was medical ethics. Doctor knows best. You just, you don't question your doctor. You go to your doctor. He tells you what to do, and you are supposed to follow his orders. You know, now it's by committee. You know, we now have bioethics, which is medical ethics by committee. And, you know, everybody's weighing in. And the problem is, is we don't all have the shared values. So while you might have a great committee of a, a lawyer on the committee and a hospital administrator and a nutritionist and the doctors and the nurses and the counselors are all part of that ethical um, consult, what happens when they don't have shared values? And so we see that all the time in, in debates around technology. You have these people that says, progress for progress sake is good. Get out of the way, don't stop, we need this. And, and then there's people that are like, well, no, because then I, I won't trust you. I, I'm not sure. You know, you don't really care, and we don't have a shared value, we don't have a common language. So, well, yes, I think technology has made the world a better place. Yes, it also comes at a cost. And how do we as a public live together in harmony, in, in our, diverse, our diversity, but live in harmony, is trying to find a way where we can have shared values and shared language. I think Part of the explanation for everything that's going on around us, which seems like chaos to many people, there are two fundamental pillars that provide stability for any civilization. Two major pillars. The first one is religion, and the second one is tradition. And in the West, we've thrown both of those out the window. Once you do that, you're into a gigantic experiment with endless unintended consequence, and it's not working again. It's, it's absolutely not working, but we've thrown out everything that would create stability. And the family has disintegrated part and parcel of getting rid of religion and getting rid of um, tradition. I think anyone who buys into the ideology of science as savior, of science as salvific, 
of science as being able to fulfill the religious long longings that human beings have always had for transcendence, uh, for life eternal, for union with the divine or union with something higher. If people think that that can be accomplished through our own ingenuity, our own will, and our own tools of science and technology, they're fundamentally deluding themselves, they're deluding other people. They're not only promising more than they can deliver, because they will deliver something, and whatever they deliver uh, will not just be uh, you know, something less than superhuman, it will be something subhuman. It will be something that's dehumanizing. And I think, without naming names, there's plenty of people within the transhumanist movement that are advancing precisely those kinds of goals and that are framing the transhumanist project in precisely that way as as ultimately our salvation as our our way of overcoming the permanent limitations of human bodily existence in this world our finitude our mortality our, our pain and suffering technology can do things to mitigate our pain and suffering but they will never fully eradicate pain and suffering which at the end of the day are spiritual problems as much as they are sort of medical or, or physical problems. So those human beings who believe that they have or that they can acquire godlike powers are the ones that scare me the most. And I think that over-dependence on technology, on big tech is really dangerous, on big pharma, really dangerous. I think we should always be skeptical um, and ask questions and try to look very, very critically at these things in terms of impacts, risks, ethics, impacts on our health, impacts on our society. Um, I don't think, we certainly shouldn't be trusting corporations or the governments to be making all these decisions on our behalf and telling us what's best and what will keep us safe and what's safe and what's best for, for our health. Um, I fear that it's like leading us to a, a virtual reality where we exist online um, and are plugged in and hooked on pills. To, to keep us from thinking or questioning too much or for desiring true joy and connection. But I hope that doesn't happen. I think what makes people human is our limitations. The fact that we don't live forever, the fact that we don't know everything, the fact that we're physically frail, learning to, to live with all of those shortcomings, those limitations, that's what a human being is. Someone who has no termination date, can lift a building, um, and so on, they're not gonna be human. What they are gonna be, I don't know, but it's certainly not human. The thing that adds, that is, not just adds to, but is the richness of this world, lies in the humans that populate it. They don't think so. They don't care. And the question becomes, when are we going to develop ourselves enough to finally say enough is enough of those people? And those are the people that we need to be able to deal with. We simply outnumber them and we need to become 
more aware. We simply cannot be dismissive of our place as human beings in this world and cede our authority and our autonomy to those who simply declare it for themselves, who did not earn it, who do not justify it, but who declare it for themselves. We owe them nothing. If we're gonna alter the human genome, augment it, um, the, it brings up for me immediately the question of progress. Have we made progress? Well, in a material sense, obviously we have. I probably wouldn't be alive today without some of the interventions that have happened from technology. But then the important issue is, what do you do with the power that you're getting with this technology? How much progress have we made as moral beings in the last 5,000 years? None. If you were to ask me why is Christianity or Buddhism or any of the major religions, Islam, why do they have any relevance for us today? Because the moral issues that are talked about are absolutely relevant today precisely because we have not made any advance as moral creatures. And so now you want to give us perhaps not omnipotence, but greatly extend our powers and capabilities physically and mentally. What do you think is gonna happen when you have people who haven't really advanced morally in three million years? We're not ready for this technology and we should not be doing it. I think if we do it, it's way beyond unintended consequences. I think it will be the end of us as a species. Who would have guessed? That's why I think it's the biggest scam of all time. It is the biggest scam of all time. And we're living in it.